and welcome to the latest Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and this week we're looking at the far right, the religious right, and a woman's right to choose. I think we're very complacent in the UK about the attacks on on women's rights and LGBT rights, partly because we have seen such amazing, important progress in the last 20 years. But progress isn't always linear, and we should always be very, very alert to threats to that progress and to look at who's instigating that and where that support is coming from. Plus Donald Trump, Boris Johnson and J.R.R. Tolkien, the parallels between Lord of the Rings and modern politics. When you're looking at what, what actually happens, what's happening now, and you're trying to interpret it, is Boris Johnson's ceremony? Is Dominic Cummings' Grimer worm tongue? Before all that, just a reminder that the Byline Times is an independent news source, answerable only to our readers and listeners. There's no big media mogul backing us, nor major companies using their corporate muscle to influence our editorial line through their advertising. Instead, we rely on subscribers to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It's a great read and costs only £36 a year. I only got a C in GCSE maths, but by my reckoning, that's less than a pound a week. A small price to pay for honest, independent journalism. Find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Let's start then with the far right, the religious right and women's rights. Sean Norris has been keeping Byline Times readers updated for months now with stories about the growing influence of shadowy organisations with questionable motives seeking to influence the debate around abortion and sex education in the UK and Europe. In some cases, they're funded by dark money from the United States. I asked Sean to give me an overview. So I think across Europe in particular in the last decade maybe, we've seen more and more of kind of authoritarian populist and leaning to far-right governments attacking women's reproductive rights and also attacking LGBTIQ rights or LGBTQ plus rights. So for example, in Hungary, we've obviously seen Viktor Orban even just last week talking about LGBT families and kind of attacking the concept of gay people and lesbian people having family and raising children. In Poland, over this last month, we've seen this real assault where they've attempted once again to further restrict abortion laws so that while previously abortion was banned in all circumstances except rape and incest, fetal defect and threat to the mother's life, they've now tried to put forward this bill or they have successfully put forward this bill to remove the fetal defect exception. And in the UK, while I do believe that in general there is a a wide amount of support for reproductive rights and for the right to safe legal abortion in the UK. We have been seeing um, groups become more and more vocal in their opposition to abortion, particularly in relation to the changes in Northern Ireland law. And in this summer, when we saw the change due to the coronavirus pandemic that allowed for telemedicine for women needing abortion pills. These are groups such as CBR UK, who I've written about, Christian Concern, the Christian Institute, and also even more fringe groups like the Life League. And I really started to become interested in the issues around reproductive rights and far-right attacks on reproductive rights because of this specific organisation called the Life League. 
this is an organization that kind of claimed the mantle for you know, really pushing forward of that method of attacking abortion by standing outside clinics or standing out out in public with really graphic imagery, really graphic language about abortion. And they were set up by Jim Dowson, who, as many of you listening will know, is also the founder of Britain First, which is the sort of far-right anti-immigration group. And so when you, like, dive into how Life League talk about abortion, you really, really get this sense of kind of far-right white supremacist ideas. So they talk about how there's a decreasing white birth rate in Europe, a decreasing white birth rate in the UK. The stats that they use, I would say, are pretty unprovable. Like you don't really get a sense when you're reading these stats that they've actually been checked or actually represent the reality of the situation when it comes to demographics. I think they definitely overreg the situation. But they use language such as like, we're seeing aliens in our classrooms and really racist, unpleasant language like that. And this is when I really started to understand that there was a much bigger link between far-right activism and anti-abortion activism than I'd noticed before or that I think a lot of people do really realise. When you look at the kind of wider situation in the UK and Europe and you look at what's going on in the US, you see a lot of religious right organisations like Alliance Defending Freedom and the Liberty Council and the American Centre for Law and Justice, the European arm, which is called the European Centre for Law and Justice, these are organisations that are spending vast amounts of money in Europe, both lobbying the EU, sending in like amicus briefings to national governments in Poland, in Romania. Alliance Defending Freedom spent, I think, £440,000 in the UK last year. So we're kind of seeing these right-wing, religious-right US organisations trying to influence the abortion and LGBT debate across Europe. So I think that's another interesting aspect of how things have changed. So just to be clear, we're not talking here then about individuals who may have sincere opposition to abortion based perhaps on a religious belief. I mean, I think a lot of these organisations will have members who are deeply religious. And of course, freedom of religion is really important. People are allowed to hold very deep felt beliefs about issues around abortion, for example. But I think we really need to think about the conflict between human rights. I mean, women have the human right to bodily integrity and to bodily autonomy. And we have conversations about other issues where we recognise that cultural beliefs or moral beliefs should not impact on another person's human rights. So I think while we do need to respect people's personally held opinions, when you're sort of seeing this kind of organised activism big money, dark money coming in from the States into Europe and these kind of authoritarian leaders like Orban, like the president and the prime minister of Poland, so Duda in Poland and obviously Kavinsky, I think his name is, who's the leader of the Law and Justice Party. These are organisations that are, or people who are coming at it from a very kind of political standpoint. So if you look at some of the rhetoric around the Polish abortion ban, they talk about needing big families to make a strong Poland. If you look at how Orban talks about his family protection programme, which is about incentivising families, approved families, not LGBT families, that's for sure, to have more children to create a greater Hungary. And one of the ministers of, I think he's the former minister of human capabilities in Hungary, talked about how abortion had been a demographic disaster for Hungary. And I think when you start hearing this language around demographics, 
and around, you know, as I say, with the more extreme organisations like the aliens in the classroom, you start to understand that they're not talking about sincerely held religious beliefs. They're talking about nationalism and natalism and race. In the UK, there's a group called the Centre for Bioethical Reform, the CBR, who have been active in the abortion debate as well. Yeah, so CBR UK first kind of hit the headlines back in 2012 when they went under the name Abort 67. And at that point, two of their directors were protesting outside a clinic in Brighton and ended up going through a court case, which they eventually, they were cleared of all charges. And then they were back in the news last year as they were the group that put up a billboard outside the Labour MP Stella Creasy's constituency office. And this made kind of big headline news because the billboard featured very graphic imagery of abortion. And yeah, I kind of, I ended up going to one of their training sessions last year, sort of undercover, to find out how they were talking about abortion and how they were talking about Stella Creasy as well. And that's when I learned that they were linking abortion with satanic ritual abuse, which, I mean, you can imagine, you're sort of sat there thinking, I sort of, I understand the anti-abortion movement, I'm becoming more familiar with some of their arguments beyond the religious one, and then suddenly you're hit with this, this Satanism argument that was completely left field to me, but the more you look into it, the more you sort of, you see these patterns emerging of these kind of bizarre links, but when you think we've spoken a lot more about these kind of satanic conspiracy theories since the US election and the kind of QAnon conspiracy theories that were very much related to sort of satanism and satanic ritual abuse. So yeah, so when I saw that they'd announced that they wanted to launch what they're calling a network of pregnancy support, I was really interested to find out what that would look like because there's been a lot of conversations about anti-abortion groups and anti-abortion organizations offering support to women who have what they call a crisis pregnancy so an unplanned pregnancy or an unwanted pregnancy there's been various undercover investigations into crisis pregnancy services who provide advice to women making unsubstantiated claims or talking about things such as what's called post-abortion syndrome so this idea that abortion has a negative link to mental health linking abortion to different kinds of cancer or infertility, all of these claims which have been generally debunked by the NHS and by other medical research and medical research charities such as the American Cancer Society. So I had a look at what CBR UK had posted on their Facebook. So they posted a video on how you can talk to women that have an unplanned pregnancy. And again, it was really kind of confirming my suspicions about what kind of advice they would be offering. So they said that they would, you know, one way that you can encourage a woman to to think about her options is to show her imagery and videos of abortion. Now, whenever you sort of challenge CBR UK on this, they say that women have a right to know the truth and that you should just be honest with women. And that if it's just another kind of surgery, then women should be able to see it. And I'm like, well, I don't want to have a video of what an appendectomy looks like before if I've got appendicitis. You know, it's not it's not okay to use this kind of graphic imagery, these graphic videos, which cause a huge amount of distress to women. And then to justify it that you're not being honest with women, women who want to have an abortion and women who don't who are pregnant and don't want to be. They're not stupid. They understand what they have chosen to do. An abortion is healthcare, it is a safe healthcare procedure, and it is a legal healthcare procedure. And the more we can talk about abortion in those terms, 
the more we can protect women's rights and women's reproductive health and women's reproductive justice. And the language that they use around abortion, I think, is really damaging and really unhelpful, let alone the fact that they're willing to link it to this bizarre conspiracy theory and this bizarre idea of satanic ritual abuse. And one of the CBR directors, a guy called Wilfred Wong, you've identified as well as questioning what he describes as the LGBT agenda, the sex education agenda, suggesting that Islam and Satanism share the common goal of destroying Christianity. So this is not a group which is simply concerned with helping women who have problematic pregnancies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that they said in the interview that I watched is that various LGBT organisations use kind of coded satanic symbols in their communications, which is, again, it's, it's very bizarre. You sort of, you can't quite believe what you're hearing. But I think it's really important because they're associating abortion with something that is morally wrong or morally corrupt and evil, as opposed to a safe legal medical procedure that women have, are entitled to through the law and that women are entitled to because we have a right to bodily autonomy. And I think it's very concerning that this group feels they have a right, number one, to go and stand outside clinics, to go and stand on streets in city centres and at universities, displaying very, very graphic imagery that causes distress to passers-by. I mean, not just women that have had abortions, but women that might have had a miscarriage, or just women or anybody that's kind of got compassion for the fact that life is complicated and abortions are part of life. And I think as well, the way that they talk about the LGBT, I'm using air quotes, agenda, it's symptomatic of this fact that this is not just about abortion stem. This is about progressive politics. This is about marginalised groups gaining their human rights. And the interesting thing as well, which to go back to what I was speaking at, about at the beginning, is this kind of idea about Islam and Satanism and a changing demographic of Europe is tapping into those kind of white supremacist fears about what we call the Great Replacement. And the Great Replacement is a, a term used by white supremacists to, to, ex, to, to what they call, you know, the white race is dying out and we're being replaced by immigration from the global south. And this links again back to the kind of authoritarian populist politics we're seeing from places like Hungary and Orban and some of the rhetoric around the Polish abortion ban and also white supremacists in America using this kind of great replacement terminology and really attacking abortion on that basis. And there's this really fantastic quote by a guy called Willie Parker who says that one of the things that white anti-abortion activists refuse to admit but is, is kind of behind a lot of their activism is that they want to stop the browning of America. And I think you can kind of see that being echoed in, in a lot of the anti-abortion far-right movements in Europe as well. And again, just to emphasise the ideological connection between many of these groups, there were right-wing US groups celebrating when the RSE, the Relationship and Sex Education legislation proposed for the UK was delayed because of coronavirus. So yeah, there's a variety of groups that have been very anti the implementation of relationship and sex education. And as a sort of feminist writer, but also a feminist campaigner, this is something that we've been 
demanding for a really long time that we have comprehensive sex education that looks at issues of consent, that looks at issues around sexuality and gender identity, that goes beyond the kind of tick box health, how everything works in sex way and actually talks about how we engage in sexuality in sex. So there's some organisation called Parent Power, which is a coalition of the Society for the Protection of Unborn Child, Christian Concern, which is very much linked to CBR UK, Christian Education Europe and Voice for Justice UK. And this organisation kind of gives it, presents itself as being very kind of grassrootsy, it's concerned families, concerned parents and educators. And they don't, you know, you don't almost get a sense when you land on their website that it's actually been set up by these more established organisations. And they believe that RSE indoctrinates children in the LGBT dogma, which I'm never quite sure what that means. And that sex education is becoming pornified and that children are being exposed to inappropriate materials, which completely misrepresents what sex education is. You know, sex education is age appropriate. It's just a, a more open conversation than perhaps we've had before. And I think what's really interesting about these groups is that they've got quite a lot of backing. So the person that hosted the launch of Parent Power is Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, who's a DUP MP. You know, he sits in Westminster and the launch was held in the Houses of Parliament. So, you know, I think it's really important that we understand that these aren't just kind of fringe organisations. They do have parliamentary backing. SPUC, the Society for the Protection of Unborn Child, is like one of the most established anti-abortion groups in the UK. They've hosted various MPs, including Fiona Bruce, who's put forward quite a few anti-abortion bills in her time in Parliament. Labour's Mary Glyndon, again, they've kind of got a relationship with Geoffrey Donaldson. So I think we need to really be aware of who these groups are and who they're working with. To touch on that, Sean, I just want to ask you a little bit more about what you describe as the dark money coming into the UK and Europe from the United States and perhaps elsewhere as well. Who is funding at least some of these organisations? Dark money is a really important aspect of the kind of rise of the far right, the rise of the religious right, and also the impact on reproductive and LGBT rights in Europe. So as well as writing for Byline Times, I also freelance with Open Democracy, who at the end of October published a really interesting article about sources of funding. And they found that over the past decade or so, $280 million of dark money has been spent across the world by US Christian right organisations, funneling cash towards campaigns that are attacking human rights around the world. And I think when you look at some of the organisations that have been funding kind of anti-rights activism across Europe and across the globe, you've got organisations like Alliance Defending Freedom, and they've spent $21 million around the world since around 2007, 2008. They've been in the UK for the last couple of years, and last year they spent around £440,000 in the UK, which doesn't seem like a huge amount of money compared to their global spending. But it is significant because they're obviously targeting the UK in a way that they haven't been doing so before. And one of the things I really sort of find troubling is I think we're very complacent in the UK about the attacks on on women's rights and LGBT rights, partly because we have seen such amazing, important progress in the last 20 years 
Like I grew up in a gay family. I grew up under section 28. And we saw a huge amount of legislative change for LGBT rights in a very short space of time. But progress isn't always linear. And we should always be very, very alert to threats to that progress and to look at who's instigating that and where that support is coming from. Sean Norris, and you can read more from Sean at Byline Times. This seems like as good a time as any to remind you that the Byline Times doesn't owe allegiance to any political party. We aren't backed by a media tycoon, nor do we depend on funding from any corporate source. We're here to challenge the abuse of money or power or both. And to do that, we rely on people like you taking out a subscription. You can get more details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, Byline Times co-founder and executive director Peter Jukes is a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and recent events on both sides of the Atlantic have had echoes for him of The Scouring of the Shire, the conclusion of Tolkien's epic fantasy novel, which was omitted from Peter Jackson's popular movie trilogy. It gives the book a much darker ending than the film. Peter was keen to explore its modern resonance in light of Trump's electoral defeat, Brexit and the departure of Boris Johnson's long-term adviser Dominic Cummings. Who better to discuss it with than John Mitchinson, co-founder of Unbound and a presenter on the Backlisted podcast. First, Peter. So, John, do you remember, the? I think it was the day after the election of Joe Biden, and I was thinking, oh, my God, so America has defeated the spectre, the demon of populism, nationalism, and yet we still have it here in the UK. And I said this to you, this reminds me of one of my favourite books and a chapter which isn't in the film of the book, which is Lord of the Rings. And it's a chapter you know a lot about called The Scouring of the Shire. And I told you this and you laughed and you saw the analogy. Am I right? Yeah, I think so. You know, obviously, it's Lord of the Rings is fiction, but it was it was intended as a sort of big mythic cycle. So I think the point about myths always are people reinterpret myths in terms of their own times. You know, Tolkien was always very resistant of anybody trying to trying to see it as an allegory or trying to say, oh, it's all about the Second World War and the ring is the nuclear bomb. But this chapter at the end is that feeling. The hobbits have destroyed the ring in Mount Doom, spoiler alerts for people who don't know the story, and they're on their way back home to the Shire, which is full of happy hobbits drinking beer, smoking tobacco. It's this vision of home and warmth, what the Welsh would call hireth. That's the thing that's been keeping them going through all of their sort of adventures in the terrifying adventures down in Mordor. And they get home and it's all been destroyed. Martial law is in place, run by men under the the control of this guy, Sharky, who is obviously some kind of corrupt ruler. And just as they're expecting to relax and say, we're home again, aren't we heroes? They have to fight one last battle. And it is that feeling, I think, that you were pointing to, that the victory that morning anyway didn't feel quite complete. And it's still going on, isn't it, right, with Trump contesting votes? We've still got Brexit here. So it does have a resonance for sure. I think the funny thing about these these myths, obviously Tolkien had no idea of Brexit and Trump or Russian intervention back when he's writing it in the 30s and 40s. But, you know, it wasn't informed by war, wasn't he? Yeah, he, I mean, very much so. In fact, there's a very good book on Tolkien in the First World War by John Garth, 
he fought in the Somme and he lost, I think, of, of his eight closest friends, he lost all but one of them. So he had a very, very, very traumatic experience. And I think some of the writing in Lord of the Rings, while it's not directly about the war, you feel that sense of loss and desolation and of damage is definitely there. The First World War cast a very long shadow over the rest of his life. And indeed, that sense of when Frodo, the Hobbit, comes back and he confronts Sharky in this chapter that you love, The Scouring of the Shire, and he realises that Sharky is in fact Saruman, the once great wizard who's now just turned into this sort of corrupt goo, destroying his homeland. He, Saruman says, you'll never... I'd wish you... when he very Christian moment, because he was also a Catholic uh, talking. He says, don't kill him, let him go. And he said, yeah, I despise you and your pity. And he said, I would wish you health and a long life, but I happen to know you won't have either. And indeed, that sense of Frodo being so damaged by his experiences, post-traumatic stress disorder, is another thing. We're all, we're all a little bit, I think, <laughs> reeling around in post-traumatic stress, trying to make sense of the post-Trump world at the moment. So, yeah, like you say, these stories resonate, right? Yeah, well, they, they, they've been formed by deep human experiences which sort of repeat themselves. For example, Sharky Acker Saruman has an advisor called Green Wormtongue who's very good at yes. <laughs> persuading people to do things and ventriloquizing through sort of enchanted kings and things like that. Okay, so if we're playing this game, which I guess we are, there is at the end of it, right, that Grima Wormtongue has been his lickspittle, his catchfart, or whatever you want to call him, throughout. And he has got him to do his dirty work. And there's a point where he's like, Grima Wormtongue, he's, Saruman has basically kind of thrown him to the ground and kicked him in the face and has humiliated him in front of all the collected hobbits and said, you know, you, you, you did all this. And he looks at him and says, I only did it because you told me to. And Saruman just turns his back on him and walks away. And Grima gets up and stabs Saruman in the back, kills his master in a final sort of defiant rage. That happens in politics a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, people betrayal. Yeah, well, you you know, I'm just thinking, if you're thinking about Trump, I mean, I you know, I'm still reeling from watching the restaging of Thatcher's departure on The Crown. The final blow usually comes from the disaffected within your own party, right? The people that feel betrayed by you. How is it going to play out with Trump or Johnson? Or Johnson. I was thinking in my idea of the sort of rum-chomp-focusy of the Shire is slightly the UK now Trump's gone. But under, under all these things, you know, that's why I think it's a fascinating myth. It is all about power, isn't it? I mean, it's a rewriting an English, if you like, an Anglo-Saxon version of the Wagnerian German myth of power. Yeah, well, he, he. I mean, you know, as well as the basic idea, people forget that Hitler and Tolkien were on the same battlefield, right? So you've got the First World War as the sort of the background music. But in his day job, he's professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford, great scholar of Beowulf and so on. He feels that the English have a bit of a kind of a, a myth deficit, right? The French have sort of taken over all the Arthurian stuff, as have the Germans and the, the Norse have got their sagas. But the Brits, the Celts, didn't have the, the same cycle of myth that he felt they ought to have. So he started to put that right. And in a way, you could argue that the whole of Lord of the Rings is his attempt to do that, to, to give a sort of a British myth cycle. When you're looking at what, what actually happens, what's happening now, and you're trying to interpret it, is Boris Johnson Saruman? Is Dominic Cummings Grima Wormtongue? Is Trump Sauron? Yeah, and is Trump Sauron? Sauron may have fallen, but what's happening amongst the people who, who will be affected by that? The point about myths is, as we've said, I think, previously, 
they are endlessly pliable and reapplicable. You know, you, the, 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 these are these are human situations that you can replay and and, and re-energize, and they come back and they have they have meaning. But that certainly that sense of of a victory having been won, but a battle still battle still ahead. We're not out of the woods. We still have things to happen. At the very end of the scouring of the Shire. Frodo's standing on his doorstep, having got, you know, Saruman's dead. Grima Wormtongue has been, has been killed as well. He's standing there saying, who would have thought after everything we've been through, we have to fight the final battle. The final stroke of the war takes place on our doorstep, right where we started from at the very beginning. And I think that has a sort of a resonance for, for a lot of stuff. You know, you, in the end, it's, it's, the, the big battles are always fought on your own doorstep. Yeah, and this, what is great about this myth, anyway, as you said, he reinvented something, an Anglo-Saxon or British myth, which works in America as well. I think I'm always seeing American political commentators referring either to that or Star Wars. You know, this yeah. is the way they need, people need these stories to navigate political events, to sense what's right and wrong and some sense of heroism. Also that sense, don't you think, when power drains away, okay, and you feel that with Trump, power is literally draining away. His advisors, you know, to see Giuliani standing there with the hair dye draining down his face, these suddenly these these people who were once powerful are now ridiculous figures of fun and they turn on one another. Grima Wormtongue, you know, the way they turned on Sidney Powell, she's not even with us. <laughs> you know, it's it's a very, very disheartening spectacle for everybody or whichever political persuasion you are to see these figures bickering and looking so pathetic. But a bit like Cummings flouncing off with his bots, you know. The counter myth to that, though, John, is the power in the books about the power of the fellowship and the power of the yes. cause over the hero, which makes it very different from German myths. Yes, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's the the friendship, the friendship and the kindness that exists between the hobbits. You end the book with it doesn't save Frodo from feeling he'll never really recover, but it's gradually the infrastructure's rebuilt, trees are replanted. I'm just thinking about all the stuff that Trump's doing at the moment is just straight out of the scouring of the Shire. You know, he's trying to sell off all the contracts in the Arctic for drilling right in the middle of the of the most important conservation areas in the Arctic. That's totally out of scouring of the Shire. John Mitchinson there with Byline Times co-founder and executive director Peter Jukes. I'll look at the Lord of the Rings in an entirely new light from here on in. My name is Adrian Goldberg and you can read more from me at Byline Times. I'll be back with the podcast next week. Before I go, though, just a reminder that Byline Times is an independent news source holding to account those with money and power. And we can only do that thanks to people like you subscribing to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It's a great read and costs just £36 a year, a small price to pay for honest, independent journalism. Find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. See you next time.